One week down, a lot of different takes on some announcements, what did happen, what didn't happen, what worked, what didn't work, what leaders are happiest with how things went for the first week, and what can we expect as we head into week two? Well, for that, who better to talk about it than our chief political correspondent, journalist David Aiken. He is on the campaign trail and joins us now with the very latest. Hey, David, good morning to you. Yeah, no problem. Here we go. Week two of uh, uh, this uh, quick federal summer election campaign. So before we get into what you're expecting for week two, can you give us a quick recap of what unfolded for you, at least, during week one? Well, week one, two things struck me is the focus on B.C. I mean, all three, um, the, the three major English language campaigns, Jagmeet Singh, Justin Trudeau, Aaron O'Toole, were in B.C., each one spending two days out of the first seven, two days out of the first seven uh, in B.C. And there's a good reason for that, because there is a lot of ridings in B.C. where there's some three-way races. I think the, um, uh, the, there's, there's a, both New Democrats and Liberals see a chance to, to win some seats from uh, Conservatives, and Conservatives see a chance to steal some seats from Liberals. So it's a real dynamic race in B.C., and the, the campaigns paid a lot of attention to it. Every campaign, I think, had a, had a pretty good week. You know, nobody had a bad week. If one campaign had a slightly better week, I'm going to give it to Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives, probably because I, you know, Aaron O'Toole may have had a lower expectations. Not a lot. The challenge for the Conservatives, I think, through this campaign, will be to introduce Aaron O'Toole to the country. I think Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau are certainly more known quantities, and to the extent that the Conservative campaign um, effectively presented O'Toole often through these virtual town halls he's doing from a TV studio that the party built in downtown Ottawa. Um, to the extent that he did that, he came across as, you know, well-briefed on the file, uh, pretty affable. So I'll give them a slight nod for week one. Still a long way to go. Don't, I don't think, you know, the Conservatives have won the election or anything by a long shot. And on the other hand, you know, if Justin Trudeau called this election to win a majority, I don't think he really moved that ball forward. I think he, he probably comes back with a minority still at this point in the campaign. But that would be seen as a failure, I think, by many liberals. So uh, here we are in week two after week one, in which really everybody's sort of feeling themselves out. But uh, as I say, I don't think anybody had a bad week. Everybody had an okay week. <laughs> an okay week, which you're right, though, when you look at it, and we're still very early on in the campaign, but you've got to think that Justin Trudeau had hoped his week would be better, even though, like you said, it, it wasn't as if anybody had a, a failure of a week, but he probably mm-hmm. was hoping for more. Yeah, so there were two things. So I was traveling uh, last week with the, with the Trudeau campaign, and there was a couple of things. First of all, the situation in Afghanistan, I think quite rightly, is probably overshadowed. Uh, the news about the election. And so Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, was getting a lot of questions about, well, what are you doing to assist Afghans getting out of that country? There was some the perception that we were moving more slowly than our allies were. Um, And it's still a mess. And that is still going to be the news. I think today the prime minister is he's on the East Coast today. He's in Halifax. I think he's going to get questions about that. So that's sort of the external thing that's happening that, you know, every campaign, there's something like that, that that sort of hits uh, this particular the incumbent. And I think Trudeau uh, will get questions about that. And then the other thing is, too, that uh, Trudeau was still getting dogged with the why are we having an election right now? And I don't really think I heard a very credible answer from him. I mean, voters will decide. Uh, the best that can be said is, uh, well, why not now? That's exactly what Trudeau said. He seems to think, you know, well, we're transitioning to uh, pandemic recovery from pandemic. So why not let Canadians have a choice? 
Um, but I didn't hear a lot of new, you know, big new ideas. Some liberals, in fact, were grumbling. There was no big new thing from the liberals on the campaign trail. And by contrast, and then this goes back to one of the reasons I think O'Toole had a good week, you know, they dropped their platform and they did have some interesting ideas about, for example, housing affordability. And same thing with Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. They were talking about housing affordability. Um, I'm sure we'll see that at some point from the Trudeau gang, but, uh, you know, it was a sort of a bit of a coaster week for uh, Trudeau and the Liberals. What does week two look like then uh, for you? Where are you going to be? Uh, if they never tell us until the night before. They, they <laughs> Normally speaking, some campaigns will give you at least, uh, if, if they're taking you up to, say, uh, Callaway, they'll tell you to pack a sweater. That's about, <laughs> the, that's about it. Uh, we're not, as far as I know, we're not going there. I think, as I mentioned, the West and B.C. got, got a lot of attention last week, so I think the leaders will be focused more on Eastern Canada. Uh, um, I, as you mentioned, I'm with Jagmeet Singh in the NDP, and uh, I think we're going to focus on, we're in Quebec today, not really a lot of seats. I think the NDP can hope to win here. They've only got one seat, and I think they'll be probably pretty happy if they just hold that. They do see the opportunity to pick up seats in, in Ontario versus Liberals. And we will be in Ontario uh, for the rest of the week, maybe stop in, in Winnipeg. Uh, as I mentioned, Justin Trudeau in, uh, is out on the East Coast. He's in Halifax. He'll drop in in St. John's, Newfoundland uh, a little later on today. I think that's pretty safe territory for the Liberals. So, you know, brief stop there, and then they'll start working their way back towards uh, Ottawa. Quebec is definitely – Quebec and B.C. are the two real battlegrounds for the Liberals in this campaign. If they want their majority back, they have to knock out some bloc uh, Quebecois MPs in Quebec – and as I mentioned, then there's there's some ground to pick up in B.C. That Those are the two ridings the Liberals are focused on. And then by definition, that's where other parties also have to, uh, they have to think about as well. So um, we'll see what issues come up this week. I, I, you know, I mentioned housing affordability. That's going to be an issue here in Quebec. Climate change is often, and it is again uh, in this election, a top issue for voters here. I know it's a top issue for many B.C. voters, but I expect Jagmeet Singh and the NDP to be, you know, throwing some... Uh, throwing some bricks at the Liberal record on uh, fighting climate change, but we'll also be talking about how do we adapt to the effects of climate change. We saw that last week in B.C. when Justin Trudeau was there, talking about money for firefighters, what to do with these wildfires, how, how are we going to manage that in the future, because uh, sadly that, uh, that, that may be the new reality going forward. All right. We will be watching closely as the second week gets underway. David Aiken, always great to chat with you. Thank you so much. No problem. Have a great morning. Cheers. That is Global News National Chief Political Journalist David Aiken. He is with the NDP campaign with leader Jagmeet Singh this week. Well, joining me now is Matt Westfall, Surrey Teachers Association President. Matt, great to have you back on the program. Thank you very much, Jill. What would you like to see or what would the Surrey Teachers Association like to see as far as safety protocols come the first day of school? Uh, what we teachers would like to see are safety protocols that reflect everything that we know about the Delta variant and what happened last year. So that means having mandatory masks for everyone in the school building, whatever their age, subject to medical exceptions. That means improved ventilation for all spaces, particularly ones that don't have a window that opens. And uh, we, we need to have space, uh, things that will maximize space between people because we know that that is something which will help reduce the spread of the virus in addition to intensive cleaning. A lot of those are similar to what we heard last year as we were dealing with increased cases of COVID-19. So have any of those things as far as ventilation or spacing, that kind of thing, haven't those, have those already been put in place in any cases? 
not necessarily. Uh, on the ventilation front, there have been discussions between the BCTF and the uh, and the province and some other partners about improving school ventilation, but it's gone very slowly, especially if you compare with Ontario that bought thousands of portable HEPA filter units uh, for, for classroom spaces that can't have the best filtration in their uh, HVAC systems. As far as I'm aware, nothing like that has happened here, and the ministry is still gathering information. So that's not going to be in place for the start of the year. Hmm. Is, does that concern you? Being a, when we heard that there was money earmarked and more money put into specifically for ventilation, I think a lot of people kind of made the leap that that's what was being done. That there would at least be those air filters brought in, whether they're mobile air filters in in classrooms. Does it concern you that it hasn't happened? Very much so. Uh, Minister Whiteside promised in the spring that yes, there would be having portable filters for every space that needed it, but I don't believe every space has been identified. Meanwhile, there's a lot of teachers who simply bought their own because they didn't want to take the chance of waiting to see whether that would actually happen. Uh, you mentioned a mask mandate, something the BC Teachers Federation is calling for as well. The health officials in this province, including Dr. Henry, have in the past been reluctant. Do you think that will change given the Delta variant? I, I really hope so. Uh, I certainly don't want to go through a repeat of last year where we start without any rules and then it's months-long fight as cases mount to get better safety measures in. We, we see no downside to starting the year with a mass mandate everywhere. And then if conditions are good, then it back, might be relaxed. But rather than starting small and then ramping it up, we need to, we need to just take Delta variant more seriously. Uh, when Terry Mooring was on my program last week, I did ask about vaccination rates. And she said that as far as she knew, going by survey numbers, the vaccination rates for teachers, the rate was very high and that she was confident the bulk of teachers had been vaccinated. Why not make it the same as long-term care and require people working in the school system to be vaccinated? Well, we're not opposed to requiring vaccinations. Uh, provided that you have, there's a transparency about how can we accommodate people who can't get vaccinated and there's measures to protect privacy. But the fact is that we know that even if you're vaccinated, you can still get the Delta variant. You can still pass it on even if you don't get sick. So vaccination alone is not the, the thing that's going to protect kids in schools, particularly those under 12 who are not eligible to get vaccinated. Right, but there's there's research or evidence that seems to show as well that even if you do have it, your your viral load is, is not as much and you won't get as sick, which I think is part of the argument for making sure everybody is vaccinated. Well, and we certainly encourage everyone who can to get vaccinated. And there was certainly a very heavy uptake in Surrey when they, we got earlier access to it, given our COVID numbers. So we certainly encourage it and we're, we're not opposed to it if there were a mandate. So you're not opposed to mandatory vaccinations for teachers? No. Uh, Provided you, that there are safeguards there for privacy and to accommodate people who can't get vaccinated and a timeline that may, would make sense for it. Uh, I've not heard anything to suggest there's going to be one. Sure. But. But, and when you say uh, to accommodate things like, say, if a teacher, for whatever reason, a medical reason or for whatever reason, couldn't get vaccinated, things like would it be a daily testing or, or COVID testing, that kind of thing? So the teacher would still keep the, that position and would be able to work around that? Yes. The, if someone has a medical reason they can't get vaccinated or in some cases a religious reason, that, that's something which they have a right to have accommodated. So there would have to be some other measures there, which could be found. 
Uh, And going back, just quickly going back to the masks as well. What was the experience like as far as because one of the one of the pushbacks for bringing in a mask mandate for students is a lot often about younger students saying that it's difficult to make it so younger students wear a mask properly that are that they really get that protection. Was that your finding with that? Or do you think that is still an obstacle as far as if there was to be a mask mandate? We don't think it's an obstacle. And teachers I know who work with kindergarten and primary age students don't find it's an obstacle. They find kids are able to adapt to that. They may need some help learning, but there's they've not really had that sort of problem. So uh, the, the suggestion that, well, younger children will fiddle with their mask, uh, as Dr. Henry likes to say, and that's the reason not to do it, we don't think that's a valid concern. And that's what people who work with kids that age every day say. Right. And as far as you know, and I, I know there was there was some... A confusion about this last year as well. Uh, I know on the the university level, they're saying they don't have autonomy to bring in any of these measures. As far as you know, do schools, high schools or elementary schools, could they go it on on their own and bring in these mandates if they wanted to? Much like how Bonnie Henry is saying, businesses are free to bring in vaccine mandates if they want. Uh, That's not the school's understanding. Certainly last year in discussing with my, my superintendent in Surrey, he did not believe that he was at liberty to exceed what the public health guidelines were. We think uh, there needs to be a more regionalized approach because Fraser Health is better equipped to say, what, for example, uh, what is needed there or interior health right now. So we think that that should be the case. But as far as I'm aware, schools have never been given the ability to exceed what the rules are, at least in the public school sector. We've heard about private schools that did right. have superior measures. Uh, given the timeline, how close we are to the first day of school, and depending on what is announced tomorrow, is there enough time, do you think, if, the, if there are big changes to the protocols or, or things that are coming in, is there enough time to implement those? I, I'm, I, I fear that there isn't. And it's two weeks before the start of school is really not enough time for school districts to make plans, particularly if, they had, if it involved purchasing things. Like if they were to purchase HEPA filters, it will be a challenge to get enough of them in time for the school year. So that's it's very unfortunate that unlike some other places, we've waited so long in BC to announce what the plan is. And, and just to recap, and I know you mentioned or you said this off the top, but just so we're clear, what specifically would you like to see announced tomorrow? We want to see a mask mandate for everyone, so students, staff, visitors and parents who's in the school building to be wearing a mask while they're on the school property. We want to see improved uh, ventilation, whether that's the best filters, MERV filters, MERV 13, or portable HEPA filters. And we want to see us maximizing the space in schools as much as possible when it comes to gatherings and things like that. Would you also like to see any kind of model where uh, parents could choose if their children are learning some in-house, sorry, on-site, some online, or completely online? I think that's going to depend on what the the numbers are looking like. I definitely know there are parents saying they would like that. And uh, the PHO said in June that they weren't going to continue with that. That model is difficult for students and for teachers to be doing some things at school, some things at home. But if the case numbers get higher, that may be the only way to keep schools open is to not have all the students in, in school at any given time.
Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah this week. Well, if you were in downtown Vancouver on Saturday afternoon, you might have noticed some increased congestion with people trying to get in and out of the city. You may have even seen a protest that was taking place. Well, one of the organizers of that protest, it was put on by the group Extinction Rebellion, is Zane Hack, and he joins us on the line now. Zane, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks. Uh, originally, the group was going to be blocking uh, both the Georgia Viaduct and the Canby Bridge. The plans changed. Why did the plans change? Well, I mean, the way I see it, Extinction Rebellion is in the business of telling the truth, and we're doing the best we can with the resources we have. So the plan was to block the Canby Street Bridge and the Georgia Viaduct to put an end to business as usual. But the police ended up forming a blockade as we were walking towards the viaduct. And so we ended up blocking the intersections of uh, Georgia and Canby. And as a result, we did end up uh, blocking most of the traffic that was going on to the Georgia viaduct. And why do you do that? What, what does blocking traffic do to raise awareness or to help, help the fight and help doing what your group does? Well, we're looking at the past 30 years of failure and we're, starting to think about what we need to do that will actually work. And during the past 30 years, we've been having petitions and marches and rallies, and we've had all these NGOs that have been doing really good work, but carbon emissions have gone up 60%. So what we know is that what doesn't work is not breaking the law, which is why Extinction Rebellion uh, participates in nonviolent civil disobedience, where we're trying to bring an end to business as usual so that there's a national debate where we can come on come on shows like this one and we can actually make the argument for a transition to net zero within a matter of few years because it's not just another issue where we can just do a little bit of petitioning and we can take care of the environment. We actually need a mass systemic uh, change that, and in order to do that, we actually need to close down the cities. But a protest like the one that you did on Saturday led to gridlock in the city. It led to more idling and people in their vehicles being stuck, which would have led to more emissions. So isn't there a certain irony there? Well, it's correct that we did uh, block traffic. But the reason why it's important to block traffic is if you're not blocking traffic in the city, there's not going to be any uh, notice that's going to be taken by the government. The when we do block traffic, we're causing emotional disruption. As, as you know, and that makes people start thinking. And just because traffic is being idled, that doesn't mean that the larger point isn't being, uh, isn't being made. The Vancouver Police Department said that there were delays for emergency vehicles, vehicles that were trying to get to emergency calls on Saturday. How do you respond to that? Well, we actually met with the deputy fire chief a few days before the protest. I was in that meeting, and we talked to the fire de- uh, fire chief about the about the issue about emergency vehicles. And he said that as long as we can move aside, that's fine, but it's mostly going to be up to the police. And when we talked to the police, the police told us it's going to be up to the fire. So it's not really during times of like protests and emergencies, people like to hide behind their roles, but. The fact of the matter is there was clear communication. And even during the protests, we did see two ambulances go by through the blockade. And so uh, there were 80 people there who were witness to this. Two ambulances went by, but were they delayed at all when they got to the protest? Well, they weren't delayed more than they would be if there were cars on the road. And protesters, uh, including myself, were really quick to move aside 
to let the uh, emergency vehicle through. So, do you are you suggesting then that Vancouver police are incorrect when they say or when they claim that emergency vehicles were delayed? Yes, that's correct. Uh, it's not true uh, because there were 80 people there who were witness to uh, people moving aside very quickly whenever there was an emergency emergency vehicle going by. Uh, when you look at what happened on Saturday, uh, and again, I'm just trying to make the connection. So how does what happened on Saturday, the protest that led to gridlock, uh, that led to, I believe, four people being arrested, what does that, how does that actually translate into any kind of movement that leads to lower emissions? Well, we need to, again, recognize that whatever we've been doing for the past 30 years hasn't worked. So if people have criticisms of Extinction Rebellion's tactics of blocking roads, they need to come up with viable alternatives because this is an issue that doesn't just affect us. It affects everyone uh, in a universal manner. So if people have issues, they need to come up with alternatives that they take the lead on. So the reason why causing gridlock was important and the reason why people are getting arrested is because people are terrified, right? People are getting arrested because they've recognized that 500 people have died in B.C. uh, just in this month because of wildfires. And within the next 10 years, we're looking at two degrees of global average warming, which means mass starvation, and that means the death of the families. So that's why people are getting arrested, and that's why people are blocking roads, because it's, we're recognizing the idea that we're part of a family in society, and it's our job to wake society up uh, through any nonviolent means necessary when we're dealing with a government that is quite frankly facilitating a mass extermination project, which is what it is. So, but that's kind of my question is, so why are you targeting people who were out and about running errands, doing whatever it was they were doing on a Saturday, and then suddenly found themselves in gridlock, unable to move? They're not the policymakers. Why aren't you targeting, when you talk about wildfires, why aren't you targeting government for poor forest management? Why aren't you targeting government that hasn't, that hasn't followed through with promises on reducing emissions. It's not, uh, you know, the person out driving or the person that was out on Saturday isn't the policymaker. Well, again, we're not looking at a situation where we can deal with this by doing bad things to bad people. We need to have a national debate. And the reason, the way in which you have a national debate is through mass disruption. We're not going to have an elitist thing where we tell people how we transition and we go directly to the government. We're simply trying to raise a national debate. We're not really in a popularity context, contest. We're not trying to win an election. And our job is to raise awareness and to cause disruption and to provoke a national debate, which I think we're successful in doing so far. Are you not concerned, though, that I get what you're saying, that you're not in a popularity contest, and that's good, because I think people that got caught up in that on Saturday and that have got caught up in other protests get angry. That's correct. And we know that during the peak of the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King had a disapproval rating of 80 percent. So we know that if you're going to cause disruption in society because society is in a moral crisis, we will be hated by most of society. And that's fine. And that's necessarily what's needed in order to provoke a national debate. And it's just uh, based on historical evidence of civil disobedience where during the civil rights movement, people were sitting down on the roads and they were shutting down major roadways because society, it was said, was in a moral crisis where people were uh, not rising up against this system of apartheid. And we're in a similar situation now where as citizens, we've got a civic duty 
to rebel against the Canadian government due to their criminal incompetence in on the climate emergency. And this is not just a, an issue of poor forest management. We're dealing with a government that is accelerating towards two degrees of global average warming within the next 10 years, which we thought previously would happen by 2040, but it's happening within the next 10 years. And they've known the science for the past 30 years, and they've still continue to accelerate carbon emissions. So the only solution to this is to recognize that the government is illegitimate at this point, and we need to participate in mass civil disobedience on the major roads in the city centers, and we need to actually bring the economy to a halt. And we're not just blocking the economy, blocking the roads and saying that we deserve to block the roads. We're blocking the roads, and we're saying, look, we recognize that we're doing something illegal, and we're willing to be arrested for it. We're willing to go to prison for this, and we're willing to pay whatever price needs to be paid, because that's what it takes to tell people how bad the situation is. We're willing to suffer for our beliefs. All right, Zane, we're going to have to leave it there. We're right out of time this morning, but I do appreciate you coming on the program. Thank you. All right, we have been hearing a lot about labor shortages. You've probably seen help-wanted signs when you've been out and about. We've also heard about people leaving their jobs, changing careers during the pandemic. Our show contributor, Raji Sohal, back with us now for more on this. Hey, Raji. Hi, Jill. Yeah, you know, over the course of the last 18 months, things have changed for people. And so has the conversation around work. And we're seeing it in every industry. We're seeing it, like you said, just on the street. Every restaurant seems to have a help wanted sign up. And I'm hearing a lot of politicians and companies saying that everyone's left their jobs because of CERB. But I'm also hearing something else. And so that's what I wanted to talk about. You know, um, over in the States, oh, apparently 4 million people left their jobs in April alone. Um, the numbers aren't that high here, uh, but still they're high. And something else is going on. Like I said, um, people left their work and they did so because the world changed in the last two years. Culture changed as a result. And maybe not for boomers, I think, as much as uh, like the younger generations, millennials and Gen Zs. But a lot of them woke up to social justice issues like Black Lives Matters and reconciliation we've been dealing with in the last several months, especially. Well, I talked to a bunch of people, including someone who left a well-paying management job at the height of BLM. And he was frustrated that the company he worked for wasn't making meaningful change that they said they wanted to. So he left, he found another job, and the way he looks at work has shifted. What I'm looking for in, in work going forward is um, yeah, working on things that matter and contribute to the world in a grander way. Being really purpose-driven and, and mission-driven in what I'm doing is, is just really important so that I, I feel like I'm contributing in some meaningful way. I think working from home also highlighted some of what some people were experiencing as, you know, like toxic workplaces too, toxic work culture. I know some people who are listening are going, oh, my work's great. I miss my workplace. I wish I could be there in person. That's excellent. And I am so glad to hear that. But it hasn't been the case for everyone, for a lot of people. And the woman up next here, she left one marketing job for another. Her employer was actually forcing uh, her and other staff to be on site immediately after that lockdown that we went through. And she didn't feel safe. Um, She's in a similar position now work-wise, but working from home. And it's actually made her realize some things. Like a lot of people, priorities switched. And, you know, going into the office was the biggest thing of the day. It was the biggest activity of a day and not going into the office every single day kind of, I think something mentally switched in a lot of people, myself included, um, about 
what's really important, family, home life, you know, it's all come, becoming so much more important than the office and everything that goes with the office, not just in a physical sense, but in, you know, an emotional and mental sense. I think it's an empowerment thing too. You know, if, if you feel empowered to do your job at in the comfort of your own home, you're more likely to do a good job, a better job. And then you don't have to focus on what you're wearing, preparing your lunch in advance. You know, you have that half an hour for lunch to, to go into your fridge at home. I think it's an empowerment thing more than anything. Um, and it's trusting employees. And I think that's definitely changed in our generation uh, versus our parent generation or older generations, for sure. Yeah, Jill, I heard that sentiment echoed a lot from Gen Zs and millennials that I was talking to, just that things have changed and it's time for the culture around work to shift. Another um, manager told me that she didn't want to return to her job when asked to come in in person. That's why she sought more workout. So she actually found herself a promotion from her position to another place and she just wanted to work from home basically. Well, there have been so many benefits working from home, starting with, you know, just having better sleep, you know, because I'm not waking up earlier, factoring in the commute time, I'm easier on the environment. I like the fact that I'm not driving as much these days. I'm more present for my kids because I'm able to drop them off at school. I you know, know what's going on in their lives. I know what's going on in their school. And all of that has meant that I'm more focused and productive in my work because I don't, you know, I'm not taking that stress with me to a workplace. You know, I'm more focused. I'm able to concentrate better. No one else is at home. And, you know, and I don't have to worry about the interruptions of social chatter. And I think that, yeah, when I take care of all these personal needs, I just show up um, better in the workplace. Yeah, I think that that, again, is very common sentiment amongst um, a lot of the younger generations in terms of what I'm hearing, Jill, for why they have left work and are seeking new work in different in a, in, a, in a work environment that respects them and their needs. I also saw that uh, a lot of people felt that pan- the pandemic changed the relationship between the employer and the worker. It is interesting when you hear people say that and that it took a pandemic to get people to really think about that and take it seriously, because I don't know about you, but I've always been of the mind. If you're constantly complaining about your job, if you're not happy, if you're stressed out, there's generally always going to be a way you can change it. It might not be immediate. It might not be overnight. But rather than stay in a place or in a position that makes you so unhappy, I've often wondered when I've seen people like that, why don't you do something to change it? And it sounds like more people are. Yeah, Jill, I was the opposite. I was, I think it's because I'm the child of immigrants. I have just always felt like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, If you are being harassed at work, even if it's by your boss, just, you know, suck it up. That's been my personal attitude. And the pandemic really changed how I saw a lot of things about work. Now, I've worked in newsrooms before, but just before coming to CKNW, I was doing uh, consulting work in journalism and in communications. And I personally made a shift over the pandemic because I thought I really miss collaborating with other people on radio. And so that made me, um, the pandemic made me want to work with other people again, which is a different direction than I think would be expected. So I just think that I have come myself personally to realize 
that enjoying your work as much as possible is really important. So I think this cultural shift, I think it's permanent. I think it's here to stay and that employers are going to have to uh, be more responsive to employees as a result. Yeah, we'll see what happens uh, definitely uh, moving forward. Raji, interesting, great uh, voices there, some great perspectives to listen to. We'll leave it there, though. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Thanks for being with us this morning. So this next story got me thinking about the last time we were really talking about marmots on this station. And it took me back to about 2010 when you might remember this. There was a big showdown in Victoria between a yellow-bellied marmot that was living on the grounds of the Empress Hotel, I believe. And the concerns coming from the Environment Ministry were that this was a type of marmot that really wasn't native to Vancouver Island, and it could pose a threat to the Vancouver Island marmot population. Well, that was about 11 years ago. Today, we have a much happier story, and this has to do with researchers having discovered a secret colony of the highly endangered marmots on Vancouver Island. So joining us to talk a bit more about that is Adam Taylor, Executive Director of the Vancouver Island Marmot Recovery Foundation. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. What is happening then with the marmots on Vancouver Island? Well, we've had some uh, incredibly good news this year. We uh, found actually three new colonies of Vancouver Island marmots, uh, which was completely unexpected. You know, this is a species that is still critically endangered. There's only about 200 of them in the wild. And we have been working incredibly hard over the past 20 years to reestablish colonies And so this year, we've found a few colonies where the marmots have actually dispersed naturally, found appropriate habitat, and managed to set up shop and thrive there. And and this, I mean, for me, this is just uh, incredible news and something that we've been waiting to see for so long. At at what point, or I know at uh, a certain point, there was very, the number was extremely small. How low did, did the population get? So if we go back to 2003, that year, we were only able to find 26 Vancouver Island marmots in the wild. We may have missed a couple, but our guess is the population was less than 30 at that point. So, you know, 200 isn't a lot, um, but certainly it's a huge improvement over where we began with the project. And what caused the demise of the population, do you think? hard to tell. And part of the problem is that nobody was really watching the marmots when they initially went into decline. This is a species that lives at 800 to 1500 meters in elevation, so very high, basically at mountaintops. And they're not always easy to spot. They go underground if the weather is poor, or they don't like the way you look, um, and they just hide out there. And so, so people weren't paying a lot of attention. And by the time we really started to investigate and do proper population surveys. The population of marmots was already in pretty steep decline. Having said that, it is a unique uh, situation in that the habitat that the marmots themselves live in is really high, it's tree-free. There's not been a lot of damage done to their uh, sort of core habitat. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of the habitat that they use to disperse from one colony to another, that may have been interrupted. And their ability to go from, you know, point A to point B, um, that, that may have been what really got uh, shut off. And then in turn, the population just wasn't able to support itself. 
you can kind of think of marmot colonies as, you know, kind of like a network. You know, they need to exchange marmots back and forth all the time to stay strong. And if we manage to interrupt that, then those colonies would be isolated and eventually they would collapse. And so that's, that's kind of our guess as to what happened. Hmm. Uh, they're cute. I think people would agree. The uh, marmot is a, is a cute furry animal. What, what is important about it, though? Obviously, we don't want any animals to be going extinct. But what is the significance or importance of the marmot? So certainly when we talk about Vancouver Island marmots, you know, they're an important animal in their subalpine ecosystems. But it is worth remembering their ecosystems are small. You know, they live in these uh, little meadows that are often less than two or three hectares large at the tops of mountains and that are really scattered like little islands above the treetops. So in essence, you know, sometimes people ask us, well, you know, what would happen if we lost the marmot? And, and we have functionally lost the marmot, right? Like there's only 200 of them out there. They're not really playing that role. So I encourage people to think from an ecological perspective, you know, how would those ecosystems thrive if there were more marmots there? And we know that marmots turn over soil and provide nutrients to plants. We know that the burrows and hibernacula that they dig are used by many other species of animals, including amphibians and reptiles and pollinators in those meadows. These are harsh, harsh ecosystems where there is snow on the ground for, you know, 10 months of the year or sometimes more. And so that, those holes that they dig, then they're the only animal that does that in those high elevation ecosystems. Uh, those are refuge for other species as well to escape a really harsh, really changeable weather. But the other reason, I think, for recovering the marmot is to prove that we can do it. Whether we like it or not, we are coming into a period of our uh, global history where biodiversity is suffering tremendously. And we are, you know, on the verge of losing many species on this planet. We need to demonstrate that it's possible to bring back even our rarest species. And the Vancouver Island marmot, this is certainly my hope for this species, is that we can show that it is possible to recover a species that was literally on the absolute brink of extinction. It is possible to get that species back to a healthy population, and that that will provide justification for us to invest in so many of our other endangered species, both here and abroad. So with the discovery of the, this population, then, does that give you hope that perhaps there might be more colonies that have yet to be discovered? It certainly does. You know, I think that this year it's been a new experience for us finding uh, undocumented colonies. That's not something that we're used to. I, you know, I, I cross my fingers and hope that there's others out there. And we're a very, very small team. We only have about eight staff. Uh, and there's a lot of mountains on Vancouver Island. So if you're out and you're hiking and you see a marmot, you know, please tell us. And yeah, I, I really hope that there's a few other colonies that the marmots have managed to sneak off and establish while we weren't looking. Uh, and nothing would thrill me more than to find out about them. <laughs> Interesting when you said that too, if people see them. Uh, do people report them to you or is it widely known that you want people to report them? Well, I hope that it is becoming more widely known. We do certainly uh, get people who report marmots, and a couple of these colonies weren't found, th weren't found by us. So they were actually found by hikers who told us, and then we were able to go out and look for them. So if you see a marmot, you can go to our website, marmots.org, and there's a form you can fill out and submit pictures so that we can follow up on that. But yeah, the more, the more hikers that know that um, if they see a marmot, they should tell us, the better. 
All right. Some good news when it comes to the marmot population on Vancouver Island. Adam, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Joe.